oh yeahs for our little theme song because like, we were just doing oh yeahs. Like, oh yeah, 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 oh yeah. Welcome to Bring on the Books. Bring on the Books. I'm Allison Winslow. And I am Brandon Case. And we are thrilled to be with you. We are so happy to have you guys listening. We are here reading The Seven Moons of Molly Almeida together, and we are on the third chapter, or the third moon. And it starts out with Molly and Sina sitting in a Mara tree, waiting for the crow man to call them. Because as we remember, they had just completed the task for the crow man so they can, can get Verum. So they're just waiting to hear from him. And as they're waiting, Molly notices that spirits are constantly around alive people and whispering in their ears. And he starts to wonder if the voice in his head when he was alive was really him or if it was a spirit whispering from beyond. There are profound implications of that passage, and I will touch on that later. So for all that are listening, remember what Allison just said. And stay tuned. So Molly and Sina are called to the Crowman's cave, and they find Jackie waiting for Molly there with the Crowman. And at first, Jackie is skeptical about the Crowman and his like abilities, but Molly tells the Crowman what to say to Jackie to make her believe that it's really him. And he wants Jackie to give the address book, but instead she leaves the scarf behind for him, the red bandana. The red bandana, which... We'll get to later. We're going to get to that. But Molly tries to tell Jackie about where to find the negatives, but the crow man is sick and can't understand what he's trying to say. It's just, like, very skeptical of the crow man. I was like, why are you not putting in so much effort? And he was like, oh, we'll reschedule. This is kind of important. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. we don't have a week. This is seven moons, and we just finished the third moon. I hadn't thought about that, that Molly doesn't have a week. He doesn't have a week. Oh, yeah. The crow man tells Jackie to leave the scarf and come back next week, which we've talked about, when he's feeling better. Molly screams as Jackie's leaving for her to leave behind the address book, but of course she can't hear him. Jackie goes back to her apartment and tells Dee Dee what happened, and Dee Dee is very apprehensive and suspicious about the crow man, and he doesn't really believe Jackie. They start to call the numbers that are marked in Molly's address book, and Jackie tells us that the Ten of Hearts goes to their apartment. The Queen of Spades goes to center where Elsa works. And then they call the number marked with the Ace of Diamonds, and it goes to Johnny Gilhuli at the Associated Press. And Jackie tells them that they have the box of photos when they really don't because that's with the minister. And they set up a meeting for the next day at 8 it's interesting when we meet this Johnny character in the book because immediately off the bat, at least for me, I wasn't sure if he would even play a role in the novel. At the beginning, you don't really get the sense that he's an important character. It's just like, oh, another person that Molly worked with who may or may not be impactful. We don't really know. But what's interesting is that on the way to the meeting, Jackie and Dee Dee fight and Jackie calls Dee Dee Molly's girlfriend and Dee Dee raises his hand like he's gonna hit Jackie because he gets super angry. And we learn that Dee Dee would hit Molly sometimes, but that he would never hit a girl. We also learn from that that if Dee Dee was raising his fist 
in anger about being called Molly's girlfriend, then he is insecure back that he's homosexual. So oh, much yeah. so that he wants to become violent towards someone he loves because they're accusing him of such yeah, thing. Yeah, totally. And Jackie tells Dee Dee to not worry because only she knows and she hasn't told anyone. Even though Molly and Dee Dee were in this like serious relationship, it seems like, he was not willing to have anyone know about it, not even Jackie, who was living with them. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, that dynamic... So they meet with Johnny, and Dee Dee begins to question him about how he knew Molly and if he knew what pictures were in the box labeled with the Ace of Diamonds because they notice that Johnny has that card, the Ace of Diamonds, tattooed onto his arm. And boy, oh boy, is that interesting. You want to know why it's interesting? Because right before Allison and I hit the record button tonight, we were just taking a lovely gander at the front cover and the back cover of the book, and we saw printed in both the front and the back cover of the book the Ace of Diamonds card. And because these cards are so singular and specific in their detail, what are we to think? I feel like that shows that Johnny is important and that he might be the killer. Or the reason that he's killed, Molly's killed. Only the Ace of Diamonds is on the covers of the book. As Dee Dee and Jackie are questioning him, Johnny keeps evading the questions and tells them that many people used Molly for photos and interviews and that Molly used to be a fixer. And I didn't know what a fixer was, so I looked it up. And a fixer is a local person who helps foreign correspondents and journalists um as they try to get a story so like they help them navigate the culture that's interesting that molly's supposed to be kind of a cultural bridge in the book and for us he's a cultural Mm. bridge into this culture that we know nothing about by being the narrator that's so true he's really is like an educator in a way he really is Johnny mentions that Molly was very useful to many people, and Dee Dee asks if it's because he could speak three languages. However, Johnny implies that it might have been because of the red bandana that he wore. And we learn that the red bandanas were given out by the Red Cross to non-combatant personnel on the field, but people who had these red bandanas were taken hostage, so people no longer wanted to wear them. But Molly quote, kept wearing one and bullets and death kept eluding you, end quote. Yes. So this is actually, as we mentioned previously, one of the foremost themes that I saw throughout the chapter. On page 187, it's completely detailed what these red bananas were for. And it said that as you articulated, the Red Cross handed them out to reporters, medics, and other non-combats from the field. Though, as soon as hostages were found tied up with said bandanas during the Dollar Farm siege, Red Bandanas and medics and reporters all but disappeared from the war zone. But then he kept wearing it and bullets kept eluding you. And then again, on page 195, There's a quote that reads, you tied your red bandana to a stick. It flew high like a flag of truce drenched in blood. Not a single bullet came your way. Yeah. So this is not only adding 
another lens of cultural context to Sri Lanka, but through a war zone narrative. But we also have a siege, the dollar farm siege, which we don't know about Mm -mm. unless we look it up. And we also have the idea that these this red bandana technique was made to work but doesn't work in battle yet somehow works for molly and the whole next section is kind of centered around his red bandana and the power and he seems to have complete faith in it i feel like maybe it's karun talaka's way the author's way of showing his readers that Molly was really, really good at evading death mm-hmm. until all of a sudden he wasn't. Before we get into it, there's one piece of information that we got to include from Jackie and Dee Dee's meeting with Johnny. <clears throat> and that is that as they drove away, Jackie tells Dee Dee that she saw a drink voucher from the Pegasus Cas- Casino from Monday night, the night that Molly was killed. So we have to ask ourselves, is Johnny the European man that Molly was seen with at the casino? Now for the fateful red bandana section. So we cut to a scene between Johnny and Molly, and Molly tells Johnny that he knows the fixing jobs he's being sent to aren't for the Associated Press, and they talk about how the U.S. and England are kind of working behind the scenes in a lot of countries, And it sounds like Molly was helping the British get intelligence on the war. It's all very shady and, like, not above board. After that, we cut to another story, and we get Molly in action for the first time. He was sent as a fixer for the journalist Andy with the Associated Press, and they met up with another journalist, Bob, who heard of a whole town being trained by the LTTE. Molly was able to get them in, and they found that Colonel G was the one in charge of the training, and they were allowed to interview and picture everyone but Colonel G. However, Molly does anyway because he's photographing everything. And this is the scene that I previously mentioned before when quoting about the red bandana. This is the scene where Molly has the bloody handkerchief Mm -hmm. flying and bullets are evading him and the handkerchief's not supposed to work anymore, but somehow it does. He's in the middle of this war zone. Yeah. So as they're photographing and just kind of interviewing, all of a sudden they're about to leave, but the National Army comes and storms in and starts throwing grenades and shooting at people. And Molly and the reporters hide behind a rock for 45 minutes. And this is when Molly ties his bandana onto a stick so it can be seen that they are non-combatants. And they were greeted by the army and received medical treatment and clearance. However, Bob was held back for questioning. Molly climbs up into a tree so he can see into the hut where the reporter was taken. And he sees Bob... Colonel G and Major Raja all sitting around a table. So that's a quote-unquote journalist because Colonel G, who is a member of the LTTE, and Major Raja, who is a leader in the National Army, all sitting talking together. So this is a very charged and politically dangerous picture that Molly gets. And... 
After the attack on the town, Molly meets up with Johnny to collect his paycheck, and we learn that Molly gets a picture of Colonel G and his supposed lover together as the attack was starting, which is super dangerous because members of the LTTE aren't supposed to have girlfriends. And Colonel G and the leader of the LTTE, the Supremo, are at odds against each other and that Colonel G might be defecting from the LTTE to start his own faction. Maybe Molly's working for the JVP. What I think we're supposed to make of it is an extremely politically charged atmosphere that then turns into a meeting of the superpowers in this tent. You have to determine what the significance is of a lot of it. Yeah. It's really up to the reader to make a lot of connections for those of you that aren't following directly along in the book. The structure of this chapter, at least for me, it required me to go back in our previous episodes of the podcast, go back in previous chapters. If you get a little confused with the political positioning of this chapter, because it is structured in a different kind of narrative form than previous mm-hmm. chapters. Mm-hmm. Molly asks Johnny how much a picture of Bob, Colonel G, and Major Raja together talking would go for, and Johnny tells him that a picture like that would get him killed. He says, quote, you'll have the tigers and the army after you with grenades. Don't even joke about photos like that, Molly. You better be joking. Of course, you said, and pocketed your your check. All I brought back from the brink of death was that red bandana and this bleeding heart, end quote. So is that the picture that got him killed? It all is starting to come together, Bryn. I think I understand what's going on. I wish that this was a video right now so you guys could have just seen my face. (laughs) She had her biggest eyes and her mouth was wide open and she had one finger up. (laughs) Well, it's it's so different. I I mean, this is the reason why we're doing this because it's so different sitting in your room and reading a book and then coming into community with another person Mm -hmm. and even just repeating what has been happening you make connections hearing the repetition from someone else yeah so what i was just doing in my head while you were talking back in the present molly hears his name being called and he travels once again to the biria lake where he finds bodies washed up from the lake onto the shore and there are playing cards placed on the bones and i didn't know whether that was molly picturing the playing cards but i think it was actual playing cards I I think and I hope that will come up again because I was similarly stunned for a moment Mm -hmm. and confused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he sees his own head among the bones. We cut to Dee Dee, Stanley, and Jackie talking about the bodies. And we hear that the UN has stepped in to help identify them. And Stanley needs the medical records of Molly's and Dee Dee's necklace with Molly's blood in it to identify if one of the bodies is Molly's. And Dee Dee gets very angry about this because I think he's just in denial over the fact that Molly might be dead. So the UN is able to identify two of the bodies, Cena's and Molly's. When Jackie hears about Molly's death from Stanley, she decides to take action and reports that Molly and Cena's death on the evening news and gets fired for it. As she's lying down after being fired, Molly tries to tell her that the negatives are with the king and queen and that she knows where, but of course, Jackie can't hear him. After the announcement of Molly's death is made, 
Molly overhears conversations about his death, like, everywhere. He overhears one from the Indian High Commission during a gathering of the Indian spies, and we see that Kuga is there. It sounds like Kuga is a spy for India. Dee Dee yells at Jackie for announcing Molly's death on the news before they told Molly's mom, which I think is pretty fair. And then he says that they need to go about the next steps properly, like take it to court, have an investigation, that type of stuff. And tell his mom, right? And, and tell his mom, yes. Meanwhile, Jackie's only really concerned with calling the numbers in the address book and finding out why Molly died. So Dee Dee and Jackie decide to go tell his mom, and when she hears about it, she asks if either of them knew that Molly had tried to commit suicide. She explains that he blamed her for his father leaving, and she was the only one left for him to attack. But Molly explains that he attempted the day he found out he liked boys and that not everything is about his mother and her marriage. It was really sad reading this. I think this is probably the most emotionally available I've been throughout the book was Mm. probably this scene with his mother because once she hears that he's dead she responds in a very hard-shelled way but then she starts weeping and we're really led to believe that this is a surprise to Molly and a surprise to everyone else in the room there's a lot of talk about how much Alma, which is Molly's mother, fought, how much they hated each other, how they never saw each other, yet we have such profound language. I want to speak on page 211 where Molly's Alma is speaking on his suicide attempt. She said, he took my sleeping pills, but not enough to do the job, just enough to make me look bad. Such a tiresome child. Then she replies to his death saying that's life and that she knew that it would happen and before you mentioned how she assumed that he tried to kill himself to punish her for her father leaving Mm -hmm. instead of anything that he was going through internally and I think that perhaps what we're meant to gather from that is this dysfunctional mother-son relationship So after he witnesses his mom breaking down after hearing about his death, he is taken to a conversation between Johnny and Bob. Johnny asks if anyone else saw Bob talking to Colonel G and Major Raja, and Bob says no. Johnny warns Bob to not let his business mess with his business, and there's a quote on page 214 that I will read. It says, quote, Bob, I am not a child. You've been lunching with Israelis and meeting with tigers, and my guess is that you aren't filing stories on gun running. You've got something to say, Johnny? Molly was a mate. Not saying he wasn't. I'm just here to do business. So we get the sense that Bob is very shady and that he's not actually a journalist. But if he's not a journalist, then what is he? I think he might be an arms dealer because of the next section. Those are my thoughts. 
In the next section, we see ministers Cyril and Elsa having a meeting in which they make a deal so Elsa can have the photos from the 1983 mob attacks. He wants her to be an intermediary between the army and Colonel G. The army has weapons that they will hand over to Colonel G so he can con take control of the LTTE from the Supremo. So basically the government is funding the rebellion of a rebellion. We get confirmation that Kuga is connected to the LTTE and the Indian Secret Service, which Elsa already knew. So we jump to Major Raja's office where we learn that the garbage aka the bodies from Hotel Leo is being moved and that Rechigado and Kasim are in charge of that transportation. Major Raja's phone rings and Jackie is on the other line and it's Major Raja's personal phone number that was in Molly's address book that she gets the f number from and Major Raja warns her to never call that number again or he will kill her. And we end the chapter with the minister telling Major Raja to pick Elsa up and to give her the royal treatment in both information and punishment, which does not bode well for our girl Elsa. No, but honestly, she is not my girl. She's not your girl? I don't trust her at all. I get that. I trust her more than Kuga. Yeah, I do too, but I still don't trust her. Very single-minded about these photos. Now can I tell you what I think is going on? Yeah. Okay, so the pieces are kind of coming together for me. We learn that the government is funding guns to Colonel G. Yes. I think that the picture that Molly took is like the confirmation that this is going to happen because we saw Major Raja, who's a member of the Army, high-up member, talking to Colonel G., with Bob, who may or may not be an arms dealer, question mark. And maybe that was the meeting that they all became a group and figured out that they were going to do this so Colonel G can take over the LTTE from the Supremo. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Honestly, I was on a similar train of thought. Mine was not, mine was a lot more half-baked than that, but that was, that was really impressive. Thank you. Before we get to questions that we each have, I would like to touch on a few themes. In this chapter, I really noticed the continuation of speaking on religion and cultural context, which is specifically what I want to talk about right now, but also the red bandana, mm -hmm. which we touched on in its significance. To continue our discussion of religion, we have something interesting in this chapter. I didn't see a lot of discussion of religion from Molly, which mm -hmm. was interesting and different. But I did catch a quote from Johnny on page 198 where he says, The only murderer more prolific than Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot is God herself. These are the things that I think we need to realize about that quote which I could talk about that quote for 30 minutes straight. But I think we need to realize that Johnny and Molly were friends to an extent. Yeah, they were very close. So Johnny having these views of religion that somehow match Molly's, I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm. Another thing. 
God herself. Yeah. God is a woman. Mm-hmm. We need the to Maha recognize Kali that. is a woman. The Mahakali is a woman. Maybe this is making bigger implications about the Sri Lankan culture as a whole. Maybe God is a woman. Yeah. For them. Hmm. We also have the mentioning of dictators from Russia, China, and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And these are all bad dudes. Yeah. Really bad, and none of them are from America. We talked in our first podcast about how they mentioned our world war, mm-hmm. but they called it the Euro war. Mm-hmm. They completely disconnected it from themselves. And now when they go to mention people that are just really bad, they don't bring up anyone from the United States. They're completely on their side of the world. So I think that that adds a lot of context to our discussion about religion. I think that it also adds context to our understanding of the culture as a whole. On page 203, we read, Sri Lanka has lost 20% of its forest cover since independence. Sri Lanka has the highest suicide rate in the world for the past 10 years, page 203. Mm -hmm. And that's Didi talking. That's Didi talking. And so she's pointing out Sri Lanka is dying naturally of natural resources, but also its people are dying. Mm, Sri Lanka as a whole is collapsing. And that's not even mentioning the people who are being killed just from the Civil War crossfire. That's just suicide rate. Oh, for sure. And And then listen to this. On page 207, the UN claims this year alone 874 unidentified bodies have been buried and 1,584 Sri Lankan citizens have been reported missing. That's an astounding number. The cultural context in this chapter is really demonstrating to the reader that Sri Lanka is falling apart at this point in history, and I think it's extremely courageous of a man who is from Sri Lanka, who was born in that culture, who lives in that culture now, to come out and make this book where he is willingly painting his community, his culture, in such an honest light that honestly kind of paints it in an ugly picture. Yeah. There's no sugarcoating. There's no sugarcoating. Mm-hmm. And when you love something, you want to. Yeah, that's so true. I felt like the this chapter was a lot more grounded than our previous two chapters. I felt like I got a larger sense of Sri Lanka as a whole and also the more the people in Sri Lanka than the other two chapters. The other two chapters were very, like, mystical and we're learning about this afterlife this one we got so much background and of molly and got to see him doing his thing taking photographs being in these war zones it felt like i was actually like living with molly instead of just watching him couldn't agree with you more when Didi and Jackie are telling Molly's mother about his death, Molly is angry at the way his mother gives reason to his attempted suicide, which we talked about earlier. He says on page 211, You lift the teapot and smash it on your ama's head and hold a jagged shard to her throat and ask her to retract the lie. And then you are jolted from your reverie and stare at the untouched teapot and your ama's unwrung neck 
and realize that from now on, other people get to tell your story and there isn't a gosh darn thing you can do about it. So you bounce off the walls and you yell. What do you make of Molly's reaction to his mother's quote-unquote lie? When I think about human behavior, immediately I'm reminded that our reactions are the strongest when we have heightened emotion, when we're angry, when we're passionate, when we're excited. And so it's it's so hard to know because I want to say that I think most of his reaction was anger that after all of this, even after he's dead, his ama would think it was about her. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's anger on that level, but I also feel like it's more than that. I think it's his complete loss of control, and I think that's kind of what he's reacting to at the end of that quote. I think that he has to calm himself down that way. I don't think he has any other choice. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's living in real time with people that he's loved but he can't communicate with them he can't reach to them Mm -hmm. think about how insane you would go yeah I very much interpreted that scene in that quote as Molly just like breaking just being like oh my gosh I'm so frustrated I'm so angry like I just need to punch something I just need to strangle my mom I just need to uh you know mm-hmm. like I don't think he actually wanted kill her but I think it's also the world he lived in secrecy for so long mm-hmm. and now he has to truly lie in that secrecy mm-hmm. and let other people try to figure it out when yeah. he probably would have just rather told the truth yeah, he kind of made his bed, and now he has to lie in it. Exactly. He kept so much hidden from people. This was not the right time in his life to die. No, it wasn't. Which makes the book so interesting. It, it does. Okay, Bryn, what's your, what's your question for me? When I was reading, I noticed a few things that brought me back to a missions trip I went on to Mm -hmm. Cambodia. I spent 14 days in Cambodia, which is not nearly enough time to know what I'm talking about. But I did notice language from the genocide that happened there with the Khmer Rouge. And basically what happened was... I think it'd probably be around 30 years now. Please, if you're listening, look up the date. Do not take what I'm saying for everything that it is. But Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, went into Cambodia and massacred all of the learned people, professors, Mm -hmm. doctors, Every adult or teenager who knew how to function in the world and make money and boost the economy, they murdered. Along with children in the killing fields, it was awful. And the reason why I mention that is because there's a quote on page 189 that says that JV peers took fashion tips from them, from the Khmer Rouge. Oh. And from being in the killing fields in Cambodia, where the Khmer Rouge was, but 
the Khmer Rouge was gnarly, and they're comparing JV peers to them, saying they took fashion tips from them. Like, this is a ugly, ugly comparison that really puts things in a perspective for me. Also on page 219, they mention tuk-tuks, which is the mode of transportation in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. They're these little kind of cart-like things with wheels on them, and then a person mm-hmm. sits in the front on a motorcycle and just oh, drives yeah. you around, and it's yeah. called a tuk-tuk. They had those in, I went to Portugal this past summer, and yeah. they had those in Portugal. Yeah, I looked yeah. it up, and they also have them in Sri Lanka. So my question is, with all of this profound context that's pulling in, I mean, we're now not only in the culture of Sri Lanka, we're in the culture of multiple different continents, multiple Mm -hmm. different tragedies. Earlier, we interpreted the mentioning of the first Euro war in our first podcast. We mentioned that because we interpreted it as a disconnectedness from the United States. Do you think that this chapter illustrates in a way a deep connectedness, not between us and them, but between them, Sri Lankans, and other parts of the world that we're less connected to? Mm -hmm. Wow. I think throughout these three chapters, there has been a lot of references to other countries and their tragedies and their very violent pasts. And I feel like most of them are not either European or Western, but from like more neighboring countries. And I feel like it builds a very strong sense of deep understanding and like kind of fidelity with those other countries. I definitely think that there is a deep connectedness between Sri Lanka and other countries, mainly non-Western countries. And I feel like it's probably because of the violent past that both Sri Lanka and those other countries have had to face and everything that goes along with that as in economic turmoil, societal upheaval. I don't think Sri Lanka can look at Western or like European countries and see a lot of themselves in those countries, but they can look at other countries like even China or Russia and see a lot of similarities between their own country and those countries and they can empathize with that better than we could ever because we've never had to go through that it is really interesting thinking about the countries as like kind of entities bonding through their shared trauma this is a perfect segue into standby questions and the first one is beloved who do you think murdered Molly Almeida based entirely on what you know up to this point in the book? And there was a lot of talk in this chapter mm-hmm. about different theories people had. So I think Johnny killed Molly because he is the only one who knew about Molly's picture and of Colonel G 
Bob and Major Raja. And I think he knows what Bob is. I think he knows that he's some shady guy. And I think Johnny's putting the pieces together himself and is like, wait, I think he put it all together and I think he might have some like motives behind wanting the arms deal to go down and he killed Molly. I'm going to say Johnny. Bryn? I'm going to agree with you. Yes. When you first came out so strong with that opinion, I was like, hmm, that's a lot of confidence. But I agree, 100%. (laughs) What is a quote or moment that stuck with you, which you think is worth bringing to our attention and other readers, Bryn? You mentioned this quote from page 173 early on in our podcast today but I want I want to come back to it the quote is page 173 you've always thought the voices in your head belong to someone else I'll refresh the memory of those listening this was said when Molly at the very beginning of the chapter was observing a park where he could see alive people with multiple different spirits good and bad whispering into nearly every person's ear that he can see so he's observing these alive people with these deities on them and this seems to me to really be the idea that the voices in our heads are not actually ours at all have never belonged to us and are not from our own consciousness they are the voices of spirits that are manipulating us And they're speaking into our lives, yet masquerading as our own thoughts. Yeah. And I think that that idea was just such an original thought that I hadn't ever... I think it really brings up questions about, even if you don't believe in the in-between, even if you don't believe in the culture of this book even if you don't believe in anything or something, Mm -hmm. no matter what point you're at in a religious journey, if you have one at all, I think that this idea that things that are past in our life could be speaking into our current life, like that idea has existed for a long time, but I think this is a very unique spin on it Mm -hmm. that was really interesting to me. Wow. Thank yeah. you, Bryn. Yeah, of course. Well, it also made me think, like, is a character going to be introduced that has spoken into Molly's life when he was oh, living? Oh, like, like is one he... coming up? Exactly. His dad? That's what I'm saying. Like, is he going to oh. realize, like, is he, was that a foreshadowing for him realizing that someone's been speaking into his life? Yeah. And mm-hmm. his vocation? Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? All right, Allison. Take it away. Take it away. Okay, well, I have a quote on page 198 to 199. It reads, You want to ask the universe what everyone else wants to ask the universe. Why are we born? Why do we die? Why anything has to be? And all the universe has to say in reply is, I don't know, asshole. Stop asking. The afterlife is as confusing as the before death, and the in-between is as arbitrary as the down there. So we make up stories because we're afraid of the dark. 
I think it's really interesting that Molly says that even the universe doesn't know the answers to the questions that everyone wants to ask the universe, especially in light of all the really religious discussions that we've had in the past couple chapters that, like, implies that there are answers somewhere out there. Who that is, we don't know, but it's heavily implied that there is something. So for Molly to kind of do a 180 and be like, even the universe doesn't know, is really interesting. And also, I think it's interesting that he brings up stories and the fact that when we're frightened, we make up stories to make ourselves feel better and to make sense of the world. I feel like that's so true in every culture and at every point in time, people have been making up stories so they're less afraid. Do you think he's applying that to religion? Like, we make up stories of God because we can't conceptualize the idea of being alone? Yeah, as I was reading that and thinking about it, I definitely was thinking about religion. Well, guys, that is the end of book three of Moon 3. And happy National Women's Day. Yes. We are recording this on March 8th, and... It will not come out on March 8th, but we do want to let all of our female and male listeners Mm -hmm. celebrate with us. We are two women. Thank you guys so much for listening. Yes, thank you so much. We are really excited to read The Fourth Moon. Mm -hmm. Really excited to come back with you guys, and we will see you later. See you later. Bye.